Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, source full of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you Um, know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source for the Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. We have an EGOT on the show. Uh, that's a type of kestrel, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of only 16 people. There are only 16 EGOTs in the world. There are people who have won an Oscar, a Grammy, an Emmy and a Tony. So oh, right. Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, EGOT. Ah, okay. Not to mention countless Ivan Avellos and... Oh, mate. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's such a massive force in this industry. And I guess why we're having him on is because it's the 50th anniversary of... Probably Jesus Christ was... Superstar, yeah, which was the start of... Because I guess what he did was one of the people who started to bridge the divide between kind of, you know, rock, popular music and musical theatre. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, those early albums that really first did Jesus Christ Superstar had Ian Gillen from Deep Purple on there. You know, I think there's a version, there's an album before then of Joseph with Roger Daltrey singing. Oh, so, and he's worked with Rick Wakeman, Elvis. He wrote a song for Elvis. He's done a James Bond theme tune, uh, Freddie Mercury, In Excess. I mean, you know, it's worthy <laughs> to be on The Rock on Tours, I would have thought. Absolutely. So let's get him on. Welcome to The Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good thing, at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Tim, so Love lovely it. to see Tim. you. Tim! Hi there. Gary. Hi, Hi. Tim. How are you? 
Good to finally see you. Uh, now, I want to get this out of the way, which is the time we met, which was at a party, a 50th birthday party, and I rather drunkenly was telling you about a song that my father wrote, uh, which I believe you were very fond of, which is A Handful of Songs by Tommy Steele. Yes, I was very fond of a lot of songs that your dad wrote, some uh-huh. with, with Donald Barton, with Tommy himself. And my favourite, perhaps, was was Handful of Songs, which was just a great song which very much you know it's part of my childhood i was i was a huge admirer of that album that um tommy did in fact it was the first album i think i ever bought it was a 10 inch album called the tommy Steele story and handful of songs oh yeah yeah, yeah. was also a single it was a hit single as well and i just loved that song and i can i i had performed it live once or twice not very well but really um, (laughs) wow yes and in my youth i could even do the whistling bit but i won't do it now oh my god I've actually got the Ivan Novello Award for it downstairs. I, I should have brought it up. I did not realise it won an Ivan Novello Award. It did win an Ivan Novello Award, yeah. As what? Song of the Year or...? or... Uh, yeah, I think it might have been best song from a film. Well, it was a cracking good song. Because I, I know you're you're such a sort of a nerd about rock music and oh, the history. Hang on. Yes, <laughs> but in a good way about the history of rock yeah. music. Words matter, Gary. Yeah, I know, but of course they do. Yeah, as right. far as Tim is concerned. Um, <laughs> And Tommy Steele, you know, remind our audience of the importance of this man. He was the first rock and roller, wasn't he? Well, he was the first British rock and roller. Of course, he wasn't um, the first rock and roller. As he was, a, he came to fame in England sometime after rock and roll had actually wasn't a long time after, but probably a few months. And, it was and, on the back he, of the skiffle thing, wasn't it? Yeah, the, the, yeah. the skiffle thing was going at almost almost simultaneously, and his first hit was "Rock with the Caveman," which was. I got the impression that it was a, almost a kind of spoof of rock and roll, but actually it was a very good rock and roll record, very short, only lasted about a minute and 40 seconds. And My dad also co-wrote. <laughs> yeah, he had a great song. And Ronnie Scott and, played the sax solo. Really? Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, I mean, it was a good record. I'm sure it got you know, a few bad reviews from the old guard at the time, but it stands up very well today. But um, the song that really established Tommy as a major pop star, of course, was Singing the Blues, which was um, a cover. Um, I believe that was after a handful of songs. My exact geography or history of those times is a little wobbly as I haven't got my reference books in front of me. But um, uh, Singing the Blues was actually a cover, as I'm sure some people know, of the Guy Mitchell hit in America. And it was basically kind of a copy, but... It was a copy only in its orchestration and arrangement. The difference for me in the two records was that Guy Mitchell, who was an extraordinarily successful pop singer in America, had a lot of hits and had been going since about 1952. He sang it pretty straight. It was a good song, Singing the Blues, and Guy sang it, you can't criticise it, he just did it really well. Tommy, almost instinctively, did a rock and roll vocal on it, even though it was the same tempo and the same in a way, the same backing as Guy Mitchell's version. And it showed him to be something rather more original than the traditional, the pop music tradition that Guy Mitchell and Frankie Lane and Johnny Ray and all those great singers had dominated for a long time. It was the way he sort of... I mean, there was a definite Elvis feel to it, as well as um, the fact that it was a great country semi-rock song. And I still, to this day think that Tommy's version was more interesting than Guy Mitchell. And because Tommy was in the Navy, wasn't he? He was going to America and he was picking up records and bringing them into the country for the first time. And um, he um, saw Buddy Holly. That's right, yeah. One of the 
few people from England to have seen Buddy Holly over there in America. Buddy Holly came to England once, which I didn't see him. I was too young, annoyingly. But um, Tommy, uh, being a sailor, traveling a lot to America as a very young man um, in the Navy, Merchant Navy, he um, came back with a lot of records which he heard over there, which you couldn't get in England. I mean, people sometimes forget that the world in the 50s and indeed up until about the Beatles time, it was very separate. Mm -hmm. If something happens now in one country in the music business, it happens almost simultaneously around the world. Whereas in those days, you could have artists who had entire careers, which no one knew about in America, they wouldn't necessarily mean, mean, mean very much in England mm -hmm. and vice versa. And um, it was very hard for people to listen to anything but the very big pop hits from the United States. And um, someone like Tommy getting hold of some of these lesser known records, the blues records, the country records, the rock and roll, that made a big difference. And were, and, you, were you listening to this stuff as well? Yeah, not really. So you were getting hold of it. He's no, too young, he's too young guy. Oh yeah, that's true. Um, yes, quite, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was listening to Elvis and um, Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran and the Everly Brothers probably were my early favorites. Chuck Berry, but even Chuck Berry was a little, little esoteric back then. And of course, the British rockers who weren't bad. I mean, they they sometimes get a bit knocked as being copies of the Americans. But in a way, all the Americans were copying somebody. I mean, Elvis merged country and um, rhythm and blues. Everybody's influenced. And some of the British pop singers, had they been American, like Marty Wilde or Billy Fury yeah. or good old Cliff, they would have had every chance to have succeeded in America. But, but they frankly had better names than the Americans as well. You know, all those names were just yes. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Billy Fury, Marty Wilde. Yeah. Vince Eager. Vince Eager, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but they all, ma they were yeah, all managed was, by um, the same guy, though. Yeah, uh, Larry Parnes. Larry Parnes. Um, Larry Parnes. Them all, all names, including, um, I mean, he, Joe Brown, who is a great artist yeah. and is still around today, wonderful guitarist great early British rocker and, and, and really almost folk singer at times, great country singer, great rocker. And Joe was going to be called something terrible. He wanted to call him, you know, Gary Twitch or Larry something. I don't know what it was. <laughs> but, um, he absolutely refused to take this name and said, I'm going to be Joe Brown. And, and Not Gary <laughs> Glitter, one hopes. No, no, no. Because <laughs> Larry Parnes, he actually set up like a charm school for rock and rollers in sort of Southampton yeah, or somewhere, yeah, he, didn't he? he <laughs> he used to um, coach them. They would be trapped in his house for God knows how long. Peter Sellers does a very funny takeoff, or did a very funny takeoff back in, um, you know, about two or three years later, of Larry Parnes and his pop stars who, you know, having trouble knowing which way around to hold the guitar and all that. And, um, <laughs> but it was a bit unfair on some of the stars who were actually rather good, as I said before, Marty and Billy and co. But it was a devastatingly funny, not completely exaggerated take on uh, Larry Parnes' stable of stars. But, you know... I have to say that I think that um, we sort of came a bit full circle recently, didn't we? We saw Simon Cowell yeah, and x exactly. yeah, good point. And, it, it, yeah. and it, it felt like we were going back to the 50s yeah. again. I, I kind of thought that before with the whole dance scene where it became... Because in the 50s, really like where my dad worked, in Tim Pan Alley, yeah. where you basically just had all these songwriters and they would churn out songs. And how big your song was depended on how many people sang it. Right, a, a hit was when lots of singers sang, and basically that's what dance music was. You had all these people in back rooms churning out records, and it was how many DJs played it. Absolutely, <laughs> that made it. Yes, it's no, the it's, same thing. No, it's true. I mean, it's certainly interesting that the the, the day of the 
jobbing songwriter who you know would would write songs in Tin Pan Alley and then try and get as many covers as possible on each song. That's long gone because not that many artists in those days wrote their own stuff. A lot of the country artists did and, and the blues guys did, but the straightforward pop people were usually relied on songs written for them by great pop songsmiths pre-Brill building days, you know, your Sammy Khans and, and, and yeah. people like that. Well, it was a separate job, wasn't it? Before the Beatles, it was a separate thing. Yeah. If you yeah. were going to be a singer, it would never occur to you to be... Yeah. So I, I suppose people true. like Anthony Newley were broke the mould there. Well, there were one or two. I mean, even, to be fair, The Shadows, they wrote a lot yeah. of their stuff, mainly instrumental, but, but I always feel The Shadows are very underrated, even though, you know, in Britain, everybody knows who they are and, and they were hailed quite rightly as being... Great. Well, every, every guitar legend we've had on, every guitar legend you ever speak to, you know, Beck, Gilmore, Clapped, anyone, they all just say Hank. Yeah. You know, he's absolutely got that mantle. Now, Hank Marvin was a brilliant and very influential figure. And Bruce Welch, and I, I mean, is an outstanding mm-hmm. rhythm guitarist. And yeah. it's yeah. almost only in, in more recent years that I've come to realise just how important a great rhythm guitarist is. I mean, Don Everly was a considered the king of rhythm guitars. I had a really sweet meeting with Bruce Welsh a a couple of weeks ago who was, uh, you know, we had Hank on and he'd heard a rumour that Hank had said it was his guitar and why was (laughs) Bruce going? Of course, I don't think it was quite like that. Bruce went to great lengths to tell me that it was Cliff's guitar. It just happens to be residing at at Bruce's house. Yeah, There's still Um, something dodgy going on there. Whichever whichever way you look at it, there's something dodgy going on there. (laughs) This is the first Stratocast that's ever been brought into the the, the UK. But influenced... The Beatles. I mean, they 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 got going so young, and Hank and Bruce and Brian, who joined them a little bit later, and Jet Harris, they were the same age as the Beatles. I mean, they yeah. they made it when they were in their sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, and really they were pioneers. They didn't have anything to base their acts on so much as as the Beatles did. I'm not, you know, obviously the Beatles were pretty good, but by the time the Beatles made it, they were all in their early twenties, and. Um, the Shadows, in fact, are no older than the Beatles, and Cliff is younger than John Lennon. So yeah. it was extraordinary. In a way, The Shadows were slightly unlucky to make it so early because it was in an era when America was miles away. You couldn't just leave on a plane and go to the States. Mm. There was no television linking the two countries. They conquered Great Britain, and nobody was surprised when Cliff and The Shadows didn't conquer America. We all thought they were brilliant, mm. but nobody expected any British act to be a big star mm-hmm. in America at that stage. But obviously they yeah. became sure. obsessed with doing instrumentals, which were never yeah, going to be exactly. quite as... If anyone has listened to this podcast from the beginning and doesn't actually know who we're talking to, you would have no idea that we are talking to one of the all-time greats of musical theatre. We are so far yeah. away <laughs> Well, yeah, I know. But you know what? It was an interesting juncture, Tim Rice, a second ago when we were talking about how there was a period when writers wrote for the stars and stars never, ever wrote. And then obviously suddenly from the Beatles onwards, they did. So you're coming along a little bit of an anachronism, aren't you? Initially starting out with Andrew, were you always thinking the only place for us to work is the stage or were you going after artists to write for? I mean, obviously one of those was Elvis eventually. (laughs) That that was a bit lucky. I mean, no, no, we, Andrew had this burning ambition to write for the theatre and writing for the theatre, certainly in those days, even though the Beatles and the Stones were, you know, right at their peak, it was very much the sort of stuff we were writing 
we were expecting or hoping against hope that it would be covered by people. I mean, we were not the artists. And I think in theatre, the difference between the writers and the performers is, is it's still there. I mean, you do get some, mm. obviously, the old show where, where like Anthony Newley, when people perform and write and sing, in other words, do everything themselves. But we weren't trying particularly to write hit songs. And I think if we had been trying to write hit songs, by that I mean hit songs for the hit parade or for the top mm. 40, I mean, a song like Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, which did become a big pop hit, we would never have written it if we just sat down and said, right, let's write a hit pop song for the charts. Let's yeah. aim for I know, one. Avisa Peron. <laughs> yeah. Hang on, hang on. This uh, is, we need to this get, is... I want to get back. Yeah, we need to get back. But that's a lovely moment, oh, well, Guy. Can I bust yeah. in there? Because I'm going to get you to do this in a bit, Tim. If, well, a bit of it. Because Don't Cry For Me did have a different title, didn't it? Wasn't it Kansas City or... No, no, I've no. heard you sing it in completely different lyrics. The search is brilliant, but you've confused two cock-ups. Ah, <laughs> um, sorry. So I don't know how to love him was originally a song called Kansas Morning. And that That's was when we, were, it. when we were trying to write pop songs. I mean, Andrew had written this wonderful tune before we even had the idea for Superstar. And, it was, and I wrote a pretty awful lyric to it, Kansas Morning, because it seemed to me that in those days, you had a good chance of a hit if you stuck an American place name into it. You know, it was Massachusetts, and I left my heart in San Francisco, and um, the lights of Cincinnati. 24 hours from Tulsa, yeah. Yeah, exactly, 24 hours from Tulsa. That was a great one. And I thought, Kansas, you know, I'd never been to Kansas. I still haven't. I've been lucky to go to most states, but I've never been to Kansas. We wrote this terrible song. Well, I wrote this terrible lyric, I should say, which was, I love the Kansas morning. And it was all about a bloke who was in prison in Maine. And the reason he was in prison in Maine was that Maine was a word that rhymed with a lot of other words. Whereas if he'd been imprisoned in Arkansas, it wouldn't have worked. Anyway, it was a pretty awful song, thanks to the lyric. And then when it became, if I may immodestly say so, quite a substantial hit, as I don't know how to love it, I felt on the one hand, well, what a wally you were to do Kansas Morning. On the other hand, it made me think, yeah, you've got to have good words to get a good hit. You know, I mean, if the words don't yeah, work yeah. or if they're stupid, unless it's meant to be, you know, shut up your face, which I think is quite a good song, actually. <laughs> a bad lyric can kill a good tune, um, as I've proved. Because so, we, we've missed the start here, which is how oh, you God. and Andrew found each other and how you found you were a lyricist. I mean, did you just wake up one day and went, lyrics, that's what I wanted. I mean, you love music. I mean, did you want to write music or...? Well, I was always quite good at writing words at school and essays and the old poem. And I used to do funny, funny poems occasionally. One of the punishments at school was to write 300 words or to write. And I kept getting more and more punishments because and one of the prefects said in the end, say, well, we, we like to give you punishments because your essays are usually very funny. And they, and they just wanted to read the essays. I said, well, I would have done them, you know. <laughs> anyway, we'd ask politely. Um, but... Um, you would have been made for punch if you were born yes. a century earlier. Yes, really. I enjoyed yeah. that, I think. But, but I did write one or two pop songs on my guitar with three chords. And um, one of them, to my amazement, got recorded. I'd written the tune as well. So when I met Andrew, who was doing a... Who by? Who by? This is the thing, you hear this a lot with people from, especially from the 60s, they go, yeah, and, and two people recorded my songs. How? Well, what is the path from you in a room to that being done by someone? Well, it was a, it was a strange path in a way because um, I made a demo tape in 65 before I met Andrew, which was later that year, of me singing three songs I'd written. Um, and I was trying to sell the voice rather than songs, my voice. And they were sort of slightly 
Dylan Donovan-ish, you know, quite simply structured, but they weren't absolutely awful, but they weren't, on the other hand, particularly good. But I sent them around to all the record companies. Well, there were only about four then worth sending stuff to. And um, I didn't get any response until one music publisher rang me up, Mills Music, a chap called Cyril G. And Cyril said, uh, we've, I've been sent this tape by um, a record company, you know, because they said they thought the voice was pretty awful, but the songs were okay. And maybe possibly something would work. And um, Cyril then said, well, who sang? I said, I don't know, somebody I wasn't interested in. You know, he was just doing me a favor. <laughs> and one, Cyril said, well, I think one of the songs we could get recorded. And he got a cover on it from an unknown band called The Night Shift who did at one point have Jeff Beck in their ranks. And I'm not sure whether wow. I'm not wow. sure whether Jeff was on my record. I did meet Jeff Beck once and he said he thought he was, but there's, there's a dispute. Well, let, well, he was. Yeah, he was. <laughs> you can usually tell when Jeff Beck is on a record. <laughs> well, 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 it actually, I mean, Jeff, of course, wasn't known then, but it did actually appear on an album, a CD, many, many years later, you know, the best of Jeff Beck or early Beck or something. So Wow. Where would you have done your demo then? I mean, not on the booth on Waterloo Station where Gary and I used Actually, to do things when we were no, kids. My first demo was, was, was at home on a Grundy reel-to-reel. But having gone to a good second division public school, Lansing College... Oh, it's up the road very, here. Very privileged. I judged the music competition there a couple oh, of really? years ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, unfortunately, it was, I was there a bit before you did that. But, um... <laughs> yeah, you would have won. Have you heard the name Tony Hall? He was a seriously, yes. seriously important disc jockey, music critic, and he also ran Decca Promotion Department. And I wrote to Tony Hall because he was at Lansing College way before me. I mean, he was. I mean, he, he died not that long ago, actually, aged about 90-something. But I wrote to Tony and said, I'm terribly sorry to use the old school tie, but I've written a few songs, and I wrote a long letter to him. And I got a reply very generously, and he's obviously a busy bloke, it kept sending very groovy telegrams saying, sorry, I haven't replied. I'm out in the north of England with the Righteous Brothers and sort of these terribly <laughs> groovy telegrams. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. <laughs> anyway, he, he fixed an audition for me. And I went along to Decca Studios in um, Hampstead and Arthur Greenslade, who was a well-known arranger at the time, mm. I showed him the stuff and I mean, he hadn't seen anything until I came into the studio and they were just two or four chords. And I made some demos of three of the songs I'd written. So is that with a band then? No, just or, no, just him, piano just, and right. me. I think I was strumming my guitar or the badly in the background, but singing. Basically, it was um, it was just to sell the songs, and that was the tape I sent to. Thanks to Tony Hall, the tape I sent to record companies, and there was no result except this Cyril G somehow got hold of one, and it was therefore covered by the Night Shift, who. I'm afraid I probably finished their career off because. It, it <laughs> Thanks to you, they are now actually all on the night shift. And, <laughs> but if, and this is the second instance we've had of this kind of public school old boys network because Genesis got their first break because Jonathan King was a right. charter house old right, boy. Right, right. Yeah. I know well, it's, it's grossly unfair, but I dare say that <laughs> the old the old state school has had that link occasionally. But the interesting thing was that I had this record, and, and as I'm sure you would both appreciate, even though you're so much younger than me, but um, having your name on a 45 RPM record was, you were on the bottom rung of the ladder. Nowadays, oh, God, yeah, yeah. Nowadays, anybody Biggest can thrill. make a record and it may be good and it may be garbage, but anybody can make one. You know, if you say, I've, I've made a CD, people say, oh yeah, who hasn't? But in those days, 
nobody had a record pressing plant in their front room. To get your name on a proper label in any capacity was... Uh, no, absolutely. Yeah, but it. Tim, let's just say how unfortunate it is now for young writers who don't get their name written on Spotify yeah. or Apple Music. Yeah, I agree. It's just the title of the artist and the title of the song. Yeah. At least, you know, you would have had seen your name in brackets beneath the title. I did, and it was very exciting. And because I had this 45 in my hand, it was on the Piccadilly label. Um, which was one of Pi's labels. It was a perfectly legit label. It had quite a few hits. I think Joe Brown, funny enough, was on Piccadilly at the time. And um, everywhere I went, I took this record with me to, you know, just to try and impress people, maybe get a job. And I went to a book publisher. So I had this bonkers idea for a book about the history of the charts, you know, the, the printing all the charts. And the book publisher didn't like the idea, but he said, what else do you do? And I said, well, I've written this song. And I whipped out my song, which was called That's My Story by The Night Shift. And... Um, he played it and he said, no, I don't like that either. <laughs> but he said, but I do know a young man who wants to write with somebody because he can't do lyrics as well as he can do tunes. And this is A. Lloyd Webber. I did think he ought to change his name. You know, he'll never make it with that, that long handle. But um, I went to meet Andrew and those days there was no email, there were no mobiles. I wrote him a letter and he called me back at my office. And um, as a result, I went round to meet him I was in the law office at the time. I was trying to be a law student and failing. And um, I went round to Andrew's parents' house, or flat, rather, where he was living. And he said, oh, I'm going to write for the theatre. And he really wanted to be the next Richard Rogers, or indeed the next Lionel Bart, who was at his peak mm -hmm. at that point. It was clear to me, pretty sharpish, that he was rather good, because he sat at the piano and said, and he played all these tunes. And, you know, they were just very good. They were very much in the theatre tradition. There, was, there wasn't much rock feel, although he did have a good collection of rock and roll albums. I mean, I didn't even have any albums, barely. I had about four or five albums and lots of singles. He had reams of albums and they were beautifully kept. And I was, I was very impressed. Anyway, he said, do you know anything about theatre? And I said, oh, yes, which I didn't. He'd done a musical based on the story of Dr. Bernardo, the um, Victorian philanthropist. He'd written it at school at Westminster, where he was at, and he'd written it with a, with a fellow pupil called Robin Barrow. And uh, Robin wanted to do something insane, like become a doctor. He didn't want to stay in the um, music business or theatre business. <laughs> Madness! So when, when, <laughs> when he left school, you know, he, he decided he didn't want to do any more lyrics. And Andrew was therefore had a story and he had a score, but no words. And um, I took over, and, and, that, and that show never got anywhere. It was very derivative and too much influenced by Lionel Bart, who was one of our heroes. Lots of Cockney kids. Yeah, we had Cockney <laughs> yeah. kids. It was set in the 19th century. It was all that. Um, it was a bit like Oliver too, but not as good. But it was Use a toff and no mistake. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, you saw the show, did you? <laughs> no, it was, it, was, it was a good... Um, it, it, no one was imprisoned in Maine. No, no. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that, that would have been but, but better, I think. Joseph was the breakthrough yeah. for you. I mean, just yeah. listen, we're going to get on to Jesus Christ Superstar because it's, it's you know, rock opera and we are the rock auteurs and we need the difference between Jesus Christ Superstar and Joseph is immense. Yeah. Why did you go and choose that biblical story? Well, we, 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 while we were waiting for our... Bernardo musical to hit Broadway in the West End, which it never did. But we made some demos and a schoolmaster friend of Andrew's heard the demos and thought they were rather good. And he said, he's got to do something for his kids end of term school concert. Will we like to write something? 
And this was for us a bit of a come down after our dreams of West End and Broadway. We thought, well, you know, at least we'll see our work done. And Alan said, um, there was no money in it. Alan was the teacher. But the, an educational publisher might hear it. And then it can be sent to schools and it could become a sort oh, yeah. of educational hit for music teachers. And he said, but choose a subject that won't date too much, you know, because we said, what well, we could do a James Bond musical. And Alan said, no, James Bond will be forgotten in, in five years' time. <laughs> <laughs> How wrong could you be? But actually, I thought, well, that probably the Bible would be a good idea. So, and, and Joseph was my favorite Bible story as a kid. It was a good story and an opportunity for fun. And I wanted to make it funny, which I was quite good at. And um, so we, we began sending these one a week songs off to Alan's kids to be taught, you know, for them to learn. And when he came to the end of term school concert, it went down so well with the parents. The headmaster said, we've got to do this again in a, in a bigger hall. When the, so the dads who were managed to get out of it by saying they were in the office, they can come too. And it was played again. And it, it got by an absolute fluke, a rave review in the Sunday Times for a school concert. And that was because <laughs> we did not realise that the Sunday Times is... Music. Okay, which journalist went to Lansing College? No, it's, all, it's, <laughs> it's, it's almost that. We had no idea that Derek Jewell, who was the Sunday Times oh. music man who wrote yeah. about rock and pop, and that was quite a new field for the Sunday papers in those days, his son was at the school and was in the choir. And he went along on you know the evening performance, for the, mainly for the dads who hadn't seen it. And um, he thought it was so good, he wrote a rave review about it in the Sunday Times and look out for these two lads. And then we got an offer to make a record of it and, and it just grew from there. We didn't make any instant fame or money out of Joseph, but it was it just got us going. This started the thing that you did, which is a brilliant pioneering thing that the two of you did, which is that you make a record as a way of raising yeah. the funds or whatever, or getting the profile to put the show on. Absolutely. As opposed to, which is brilliant, it's completely the other way around to how other people do it. Yeah, I mean, in a way, we didn't know what we were doing because the Joseph, obviously we didn't think Joseph was a show. It did turn out to be, but we just thought it was something for schools. So the record was an obvious move. When it came to Superstar, and what Joseph finally did for us, we did one more performance of it in St Paul's Cathedral. Um, we were invited to take part in some St Paul's festival, which was great. And, and we had a rock group playing in it. A pop, well, they were pop, but they were very good. And it went down really well. And that performance got us proper management. And then we were offered salaries just to exist. I mean, not, not much, about 1,500, 2,000 quid a year each. That seemed a lot. And because of our connection with the Dean of St. Paul's, we had this weird idea to do something on the life of Jesus seen through the eyes of Judas Iscariot. And again, we, we were thinking theatre. We wanted it to be something that could be staged, but nobody wanted to stage it. Our manager, David Land, was hawking it around to the theatrical friends of his, the Cameron Macintoshes of, of the day. Mm -hmm. But they all said, no, no, this is an outrageous idea or religion won't work. So we were forced in the end, yet the only person who wanted to do it was a guy at MCA Records called Brian Brolly. And MCA Records were a great company for us because they had a small office in London, which meant we were a, one of their very few acts. But they had worldwide companies around the world just at the time when the album and worldwide record companies were really where you had to be. And um, we were therefore forced in a way out of desperation to make an album rather than go for a show and thank god we did because then we could make it more rock we had to aim for the radio and 
the actual piece wasn't influenced by that, but the way it was done was. And Andrew was able to put huge forces together, like an orchestra and a choir and a rock band, which you would never have done in those days in the theatre. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Tim, let's step step back a little bit. Was it called Jesus Christ Superstar when you were... What a great title this is for the time you were living. Also, because the word superstar had only just been invented, yes. hadn't it? I remember. I looked it up some years later. I think it was coined somewhere obscure in about 1938 but i first was aware of it when i saw a big ad for tom jones in the melody maker or something and it just said the world's number one superstar and there was a picture of tom jones and i thought what a great word superstar is and we'd written the song or i'd more or less written the the song superstar but it just went jesus christ jesus christ dum, bum, bum, bum. it didn't have the word superstar in it and i thought let's put that in and call the whole show i mean if you look on the very first single Murray Head of that song, even though the song was by then called Superstar, it said from the forthcoming musical or opera, Jesus Christ. It didn't say Superstar. So wow. it, it took a bit of time for that to happen. And But everybody, when they heard the title Jesus Christ Superstar in 1969, they thought, wow, you either loved it or hated it but without hearing it. And um, it was a bit like the Sex Pistols in a way, you know, the, the yep. Sex Pistols, you couldn't ignore them. You either were very right. pro them or very anti them. And to a certain extent, Superstar was like that. 
because we'll, we'll get on to that because yeah. obviously it, it caused a lot of problems, especially with the with the religious yeah. community in in America. Especially when you and you, I only recently found out that you hosted that brilliant TV debate with the Pythons, who you know, whose, whose original title for life for Life of Brian was Jesus Christ, Lust for Glory. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I mean, that's the jumping ahead, but it was extraordinary that one of the shows I had featured. Michael Palin and John Cleese up against the Bishop of Southwark and Malcolm Muggeridge. That's right. It was amazing. It's amazing. It's all and, on and, YouTube. It's fantastic. Yeah, I know. And what people forget that the first half of the show, which was fine, was me interviewing Paul Jones of Manfred Mann, who's one of my favourite singers, and Norris McWhorter, who founded the Guinness Book of Records. And I thought, well, this might be the best part of the show, the first half. But of course, it's because I was a bit worried about the Bishop and the Malcolm Muggeridge. But we got the most ding-dong, fantastic battle um, which I hardly got a word in edgeways. I mean, I, I was meant to be the host, and I was thinking, well, I can always say this sort of thing happened to us with Superstar 10 years ago, which it did, but we never got onto a TV chat show being harangued by religious leaders. We were just harangued outside the theatres, mainly. Sorry, I just want to take a little left... Sorry, really sorry, Gary. I just want to take a little left turn here, because you've just reminded me of something. I just want... Only a couple of years ago, I found out that Paul Jones did these sort of pop recordings of Sex Pistols songs, and apparently that was your idea he told me about it yeah because yeah. your idea what your thought was that like anarchy in the uk and stuff they are just nice pop songs they just haven't been done right my favorite sex pistols track was pretty vacant i thought it's a rather good song and it is yeah, absolutely did a version of that and sheena is a punk rocker by the ramones i think it was and we did them with strings and um paul singing almost like they were ballads which they worked in a way. I mean, the record didn't go, but he, one or two people quite liked it. It got a bit of airplay, but um, I think some of the Sex Pistols fans were rather sort of um, offended by this. But obviously I mean, offending people was <laughs> p- what you um, did. I, I can't think of anything more punk than... <laughs> we had a Paul wearing a punk badge on the cover of the single, I think, but it, it didn't do anything. But I was always, you know, fooling around doing strange records, none of which really came off but let's, let's get back to jesus christ superstar because because i think what people forget now because it's become so part of the establishment and part of the the cultural ether is the irreverence of it you know woodstock had only just happened and so you turn the jesus scenario into a kind of woodstock this is a hippie leader this isn't the first time this sort of thing's been done you go back to sort of people like bruegel who was you know people who would paint Jesus in their yeah. own time, you know, as though he was living there with them. And you were turning this yeah. man... You were sort of, de- you were sort of de-messiring yeah. and him And that's what the, well, the, the religious community <laughs> were outraged by, right? Well, some of them were. The religious right, let us say, maybe, I don't know what you'd call it. Yeah, well, them. the religious right, yeah. to a certain extent, down in um, the, the South, but we didn't actually go down there very much at the time. We had a ridiculous charge of, of anti-Semitism, which I, I was, you know, I was rather offended by that, which we defended yeah. successfully. But basically, the the press then as now would blow up any controversy and make it seem bigger than it was. And although we did get a lot of protest at the time, it was very little that was that was actually dangerous or worrying to us. We got far more. We got thousands and thousands of fan letters, which we never were able to open, which the record company got. And again, you know, I must remind you that, or indeed everybody that there was no email in those days. Post was the important thing, and protesting outside theatres was the way to do it. And obviously it was controversial, but I think 
when you see something like Jesus Christ Superstar, most people said, wow, this is interesting. And even if I don't like it, I want to go and see it. I mean, he ends up on a cross at the end. I mean, it's quite a shocking image, isn't it, for a sing-along musical? It's a, you know, genuinely terrifying story. And um, from the point of view of Judas, I mean, I always thought, as a, even as a kid, I thought, why was Judas, you know, he seemed like a bit of a fall guy, really. And um, the strange thing is that in the Gospels, which is the only virtually the only record that we have of, um, of Jesus' life, he doesn't really have a point of view. He doesn't say anything much. He's just the guy who betrayed his, his master. And he must have had a reason for doing it beyond 30 pieces of silver. That was something which I found intriguing. And to a lesser extent, Pontius Pilate, who was unfortunate in my view that he happened to be the man in charge of that particular outpost of the Roman Empire at that time. Because in the creed, and the Catholic creed and the Christian creed, it's, you know, he, he, it says, I believe in blah, 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 our Lord, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. And I think, well, he did, but it wasn't really Pontius Pilate's fault. He happened to be the bloke around at the time. I mean, th- these are all thoughts I had as a kid, really. And, yeah. and I thought, and obviously they were things I was able to expand on when we came to write the show, which I, I rather enjoy. We should talk about the album because, you know, being, you know, a show predominantly about rock, you make this incredible rock album and I've had another listen to it. And I forgot how, you know, can I use that word? Proggy it is at times, you know. Yay, um, there it is. And Ian Gillen as Jesus Christ yeah. from Deep Purple. We'll get there. But I just also want to just say that I did a little bit of research into the term <laughs> rock opera, Tim. And... Uh, and it says, it says that apparently the story of Simon Simopath by a band called Nirvana in 1967 gets credited. An English psychedelic band from London who sued Nirvana and made a lot of money out of court for, for stealing their name, apparently, even though you've never heard of them. That was apparently the first rock opera. Well, it might have been. I don't know of it, actually, to be honest. I think I've even heard of it until you just mentioned it. Obviously, The Who's Tommy was billed as a rock opera, and and that came out shortly before we did. And SF Sorrow by The Pretty Things, which was before that. that. that A little later, a little later. That was before Tommy. No, was it? Yeah, I think, but I'm pretty sure. You're you're probably right, sorry. (laughs) I was unaware of SF Sorrow at the time, I think. But Tommy was an inspiration in many ways. Tommy, Tommy was, was, yeah, was, was the one but, that lifted the curtain. But I think, and, you know, I'm a great, great fan of Pete Townsend and Roger Daughtry and the, and the lads, but I don't think we were particularly up with Tommy when we were doing Superstar. I think it came out in 69, and I was aware of it, and I, lo- I loved the singles, but I, we kind of thought of it, maybe wrongly, as a great Who record, because it was all sung by the one group and performed by the yeah. one group, we felt it was nothing like what we were doing. And um, in a way, it wasn't because we were using lots of different performers and characters and, and dealing with a very old fashioned story, not very old story, whereas Pete was um, doing a brilliant story from his own brain and um, everything by, by um, you know, the, the four members of the band, plus one or two sessions. Was Ian Gillen in Deep Purple when he, was, when he sang the Jesus he part? just about joined it. His manager was a chap called Tony Edwards, and um, we'd had a tiny success with the Superstar single with Murray, and we were frantically writing the rest of the show, which we'd had drafted out, and we were working out how to record it and who to record it with. 
was the MCA giving us a deal. And um, Tony Edwards read this story and, and we said in passing, we were, Murray was going to sing the part of Judas and we were looking for someone to sing the part of Jesus. And Tony Edwards came round with, with some tapes of one or two of his artists who were good, but they were sort of balladeers, you know, Andy Williams, that sort of thing. Right. Not what we were trying to do at all. And um, we said, no, really, this has got to be rock. And Andrew played on the piano one or two of the songs that we'd written, um, including Gethsemane, and saying this should be, you know, really almost screamed. Tony Edwards, he said, I think I've got the chat for you. And he came back with a copy of Ian Gillan singing Charlie in Time. And he said, this is from the new Deep Purple album. And it's a new lineup of Deep Purple. One or two guys the same, but Ian is the new lead vocalist. And we didn't know Ian Gillan at that point, but we heard his voice and... Andrew said, that's exactly what I want. I can tell you for sure, we did not know anything about Ian Gillan. I know he was in episode six, but they never quite made it. Ian's voice was new to us and we were very excited by it. And Ian and Tony came round again and we played them the stuff and we went into the studio pretty quickly and Ian did a fantastic job. And I'm still in touch with him. I saw both him and Murray not that long ago. And um, oh. it was really great for him because he had that going I mean, he was number one in the American charts with Superstar and simultaneously breaking through as one of the really big heavy metal bands with Deep Purple. The one thing I forgot to ask you and was on my mind, was Jesus Christ Superstar the first sung through musical? Well... That meaning there's no talking in between the songs? Depends. I mean, if you go back to um, Gilbert and Sullivan or, you know, yeah. that far back, but of its time, it was probably the first. I mean, most of the big musicals, that we were admiring and just before us were not sung through. But a lot have been sung through since, like Les Mis and shows like that. So I think we influenced a few people. Was that a conscious decision or was that because you did the album first? It, that you Because we did the album first. Yeah. And that was another reason why the sheer good fortune in doing the album first. We did it as a complete piece of music, sung through, operatic in form. We originally thought, had we had a theatrical producer take it on, we probably would have written a really bad book for it with, you know, people saying, hi, Judas, what's for supper? You know, and, 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 and things like that. It would have been terrible. That's actually really important because you are dealing with really mythical, heightened characters that we can't imagine speaking. OK, we imagine people speaking in Shakespearean language, but not in real language. But so singing, all of them singing, that kind of works. It does. I mean, that's a very good point. That's really why musical sometimes, or indeed opera, has the opportunity to transcend storyline and everything. It's simultaneously real and not real. People, if they like what they're hearing, within the first few minutes, they're drawn into it. And then they, obviously they can tell people are singing, but they get used for the two hours or so. This is what the life of this piece is. This is, this is what we're hearing on stage. And they're totally used to it being sung. And if somebody suddenly said a few words, it would be a bit of a jolt. They'd say, hang on, you know, this isn't right. This is meant to be sung. And um, we were very lucky, I think. We had to make it shorter because we, we had two albums, two discs. It couldn't be too long. And most musicals are too long, in my yeah. view, including some of ours. It had to be <laughs> concise. It had to be rock. It had to be all sung. All these things helped it. And um, if we'd gone to theatre first, which we tried to do, it probably wouldn't have been a success at all. Mm. Would it 
No. Well, I would not be on this show now. So, Evita. Yes. Right. I mean, th- this is mind-boggling. We need a music. What's a hit musical idea? I know. <laughs> Argentinian. No, not the Argentinian president. His wife. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know she was the great cultural figure, but well, she was the star. She was a very important yeah. part of the Argentinian. Who was aware? Yeah, because Tim, you've story. gone, you've gone with someone who's the most famous figure in the world to someone yeah. that hardly anyone has ever heard of. It was pretty niche. Should we say? Well, I'll... although cast a shadow over Argentina forever, this incredibly contradictory form of politics. <laughs> I remember people saying to us when Superstar was mooted before it became a big hit, say, "Well, some of the theatrical producers were saying, well, it's a story everybody knows. There's, you know, it, it, it's too well known. It can't work.'" With Ava Peron, they said the opposite. Nobody knows the first thing about it. How can this work? But it did work, and it wasn't our original choice. We were going to do a show on. Um, Jeeves and Bertie Wooster, which Andrew ended up doing, but not with me, because I, I I didn't think it was going to work. And Ava Perron became my... It was an idea I heard. I was inspired by a radio programme on her, which I heard by chance. This is pre-Satnav. If there'd been Satnav, you wouldn't have a veto, because I was, I was, I was on my way to um, a dinner somewhere at some friend's house, and I, I was lost. And, and because I was lost, I heard the beginning of a show on the radio, you know, and it, and it was something called Legends of Our Time. Oh, so this will be a Radio 4 documentary. Yeah, it was. It was a yeah. half-an-hour Radio 4 documentary. And I, heard, <laughs> I thought, this is interesting. And, and, and then I got to the house and I thought, I'd better try and listen to this on the, on the you know, replay because it was on again later in the week. And um, I heard it. And I, the thing is, I did know a tiny bit about her, not much, but more than most people. I'd been aware of her from collecting stamps when I was a kid. And I, for some reason, I remembered in the papers reading, I was very young, but I do remember reading about her death. And so I knew she was Argentine, glamorous and dead. Those are the three keys to a hit musical. (laughs) (laughs) And and this is also why taxi drivers don't write hit musicals, because they just know their way around, right? (laughs) (laughs) Very, very very true. But I did a lot of research. I went out to Argentina and Andrew at that point, you know, he was doing Jeeves and he, he, I don't think he quite thought it was a good idea, but Jeeves, which, you know, I, I shouldn't say this, but Jeeves helped me by not being a big success. And Andrew realized that, that perhaps it was a mistake to, in a way, go back into the past at this stage in our careers and go back to other styles when we sort of, by mistake, forged our own style. So he said, right, let's do this Ava Peron thing. And, um, we did. And by that time, I'd already drafted out the storyline and all that. So, um, and again, we thought this time we will deliberately do the record first because yes. we don't want it staged until we've done the score. Um, and um, it worked again. And you had the wonderful Julie Covington. Yeah, she was great. We, well, she was on Rock Follies, a big TV show at the time. Yeah, I loved and, Rock Follies. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. And, Which and Andy Mackay wrote the Andy songs. Andy Mackay, yeah. With, yeah. with um, now let me get this, uh, Charlotte Cornwall. Yeah. Who is the sister of the famous... David Cornwall. Who is... John le Carre. John le Carre. Oh, right. Sorry. And um, Rula Lenska yeah. and fourth lady joined called Sue Jones-Davies. And they were all great in different ways. And that was one of the reasons why the show worked, because, you know, you had these four disparate characters coming together to form an all-girl group, which was much rarer then than it is now. But Julie... Her voice seemed to be the one that we thought would work best for Evita, and we had no idea whether she'd agree to do it, but she did. We got in touch with her, and she came round and liked it, and we began recording it with her. 
and David Essex as Che yes. Guevara. Well, David, who was brilliant... Is Che Che Guevara? Or is it Che, just the narrator? It really is Che Guevara. It is Che Guevara, okay. Even even though they may never have met. They could have met, but I don't think they did. No, David was not on the original record. Ah. We were very lucky to get Colm Wilkinson, who is a wonderful singer. Ah, Um, Who went on to star in Les Mis, right? Yes. Les Mis was what kicked Colm into stardom. But on this album, he was terrific on the Evita album. He was the first big person to sing that role. But when we got to the London West End show... Neither Covington didn't want to do it. Colm Wilkinson, I think he was away at the time, or, or Hal Prince wanted somebody, you know, with a different sort of voice. I can't remember what it was, but David Essex, we approached David because A, he was very talented, and B, he was a big name. We felt we didn't need a big name, but it happened that one very big name was also very good, and that was David Essex. And mm. David did a brilliant mm. job. He but hadn't a- you already written a hit single for him, or was that afterwards? No, Mike Batt, who you know well, Gary, I'm sure you do yeah. as well, Gar. Um, yeah. Mike Batt did a brilliant cover version of Oh, What a Circus with David, which was not the version. Oh, yes, of course. All right. The cast album with Elaine Page and David Essex, that was a different recording of Oh, What a Circus. Mike did a wonderful arrangement of it, and, and it was a big hit single for David. And we never thought either Don't Cry at Me, Argentina, or Oh, What a Circus would be hit singles. Once I heard... David's version with Mike Batt, and once I heard Julie's final version, we thought maybe this, these could be hits. To bring this up, how do you write? Is it you and Andrew on it together, or is it like an Elton and Bernie thing Good question. in the same room? I mean, like most writers, I imagine, who um, have separate jobs to a great extent, you have to do your job more or less on your own. I can't write a lyric if there's anything going on in the next room or, or it was in any major distraction. But have you already got Andrew's tune? I've already got the tune, all I need. Ah, okay. And right. by that point, I've, don't cry me, Argentina. In those days, I'd have a cassette. I'd play the cassette at home. And I'd then, of course, after a few plays, you've got the tune in your head, so you don't need that. Except at the end, when you want to play the whole thing back and sing along with it to see if it fits. We would together, well, I would say, right, this is probably the first scene. This is, this is the second scene. We need a... A, a song here that's a, a funeral. We, this one needs a love song. This one needs a rocker, whatever. But do you ever have a title to give to Andrew, say, so you can get the scansion of the title into the melody? Occasionally. I'm not sure that, that I did have very many actual titles before, if any, but Andrew would write a melody or a piece of music that fitted the mood, and that would often give me the title. Certainly Don't Cry Me Argentina was a title that... that we didn't put into the last That's right. I'm wondering if you ever say had a title that inspired Andrew. No, I like to think that the storyline I was offering him inspired him, and it did, because right. I think the Evita score is terrific. But yeah. um, I don't remember giving him a title. Um, I might have done, but I can't remember doing that. I mean, Oh, What a Circus was the first lyric I wrote to one of Andrew's melodies. And that, of course, that melody is the same melody as Don't Craft Me Argentina, but done in a different way. I love this dissection of, of songwriting because one of the key things about writing in a musical as opposed to writing a pop song is that, we're told, is that in a pop song is just a snapshot of emotion, where in a musical, a song has to have drama running through it. Something has to change within the song. Yeah, so so the character to start, start at a, point A and end at point B. Is, is in a different place. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that you're always keen on doing? Or, you know, is another suitcase, another room? Is that, is, does that have that in it? Or was that a straight up pop song? Well, that was the one song, Another Suitcase in Another Hall, that we thought 
would work out of context. Oh, and didn't someone come up with a line in the studio with the answer bit? I don't think so. In we studio. wrote that one in, okay. in, in Beer Ritz. Sounds rather grand, but we went off to... Yeah, it does. <laughs> yes. so I, I should have said Brighton or Shoreham or something. But um, we went off, we, we took a room, or a couple of rooms in a hotel to get out of the way and actually concentrate and not be distracted, which is dark to go to be a Ritz if you don't want to be distracted. But we did write about five or six songs there, including another suitcase. And we felt at the time that that was something that would work out of the show. And we expected that if there were to be a pop hit, we thought that would be it. But I don't remember the answer phrases coming in later. I think they were always there. Okay. Yes, yeah, so we don't want to cause us, us any kind of lawsuit. No, it was probably someone stage. angling for glory. Yeah. It happens a lot. <laughs> the character's drama shifting within a tune, is that important to you as a lyricist, Tim? Yes, I think it is. I mean, the job of a song, as you were implying there, the job of a song in a show is often as much to get the story moving on and get the character developed as it is to have a good song. But you've still got to make it a song that people enjoy hearing, otherwise they'll drift off. Like, you know, a good bit of dialogue in any straight play. If it's entertaining, besides being factual, it, it will hold the attention better. And um, in a way, I find it easier at times to write a song or a scene which has to get from A to B, has to tell a story, has to put something over. Because I don't know, I mean, Gary, when you when you write your great songs, I'm I'm absolutely baffled as to sometimes how you come up with an idea which appears to be a brilliant three-minute snapshot, if you like, of life, of an attitude. And um, from that, you can write something like, you know... Without being guided by drama. Yes, but which I find very difficult. I mean, I've hardly ever had any, any success with a song that wasn't in some way inspired by... Um, a story that I was writing that wasn't a part of a story. They, it's always been important to me that, that, or put it this way, it's always been inspirational to me if I'm telling a story. If I'm just writing a one-off song, I'm, I'm not sure I can do it. I think I think with songs, it's it, with pop songs, I think it's all about trying to shift perspectives so that you're not in the same version every verse and that certainly when you get to a middle eight you come right out of your character and you're you're looking more objectively or at a situation so you kind of you do a sort of staging if you like when you're writing a pop song from different angles of perception but also actually tim i want to ask you gary and i have done some musical writing together and there's all sorts of theory and stuff isn't there and that's one did you just learn to write musicals as you went along or did you study the theory of like you need to hear your main theme by here and no. this character needs to have strong rhymes and this needs to well i didn't and i would say andrew right. probably did in as much right. as he had an incredible knowledge of musicals and how they were structured i liked a lot of musicals when I was a kid, but I hadn't actually seen any of them. I'd only heard them on record because I was a vinyl junkie. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that we didn't obey the rules was why we were successful. Um, well, one of the reasons, because Jesus Christ Superstar and indeed Evita, they broke a lot of the rules, you know, the subject matter, the, the mm -hmm. format, the way they were introduced to the world. And I've always said when people ask me, how do you write a hit musical? I say, well, you know, I don't really know, except you've got to remember the rule is there are no rules and no one knows anything. And people, you know, as I, as I think I said earlier, they, they'd say you can't write about Jesus because everybody knows the story and you can't write about Ava Perron because nobody knows the story. Well, ludicrous. You know, you can write about anything in theory. Anyway, I believe you can write about almost anything if you just approach it with some sort of originality and a few good tunes. And were you happy with Madonna? I mean, of course you were happy, but I mean, that's that. Would you have imagined that? <laughs> um, 
I was very glad about Madonna doing it because um, I felt she had, you know, some similarities with Ava. She was a very determined, unusual yeah. woman. And I think she did a very good job in the film, actually. And uh, yeah. I was slightly disappointed for her that she didn't turn it into a bigger film career. I mean, I was slightly surprised. Can I ask about they're putting musicals on into film? Because invariably the actors are miming. And I always have a little problem with that. I prefer mm -hmm. to see them on stage emoting, physically involved in presenting the words directly to the audience. Mostly in films, they're having to mime. Did you have an issue with that at all, Tim? I was not deeply involved with either the Superstar or Evita movies. And I was delighted they were being done. And I, you know, thought that both of them had good points and perhaps the odd weak point as well. But... You're right. I would agree with you completely. With a musical, it's much, you get the essence of the piece much more completely on, on stage than you do in film. You're right. And sometimes, of course, in some films, like My Fair Lady, they're miming to someone else's voice. Yeah. Also, you've got actors doing something they're not used to doing. Pop singers are used to miming, yeah. you know, from yeah. a life on top of the pops, whereas yeah. actors have never done it. <laughs> I mean, Madonna, it's interesting. We wrote a new song for her. She wanted a new song and, 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 you know, we all wanted a shot at an Oscar because you've got to have an original song that hasn't been heard before if you want to be in line for an Oscar. And normally people stick a new song into a film because Don't Cry For Me Argentina or any, any song in a Vita film could not win the Oscar because they'd been around before. Nominated songs for Oscars have to be brand new in the film, first time they're heard. So if we wanted to have a outside chance we had to write a new song and we wrote one for madonna and almost by mistake it was a jolly good song what was it tim remind me you must yeah. love me and it, okay, and it was yeah. a top 10 hit for her on the american charts as well and it was really something that turned out so well i mean a it did win the oscar but b it worked well enough for virtually every show now of avita every stage show adds that song oh, right. in the show which is great and now we're on this. Can we just bring up? Sorry, I'm very sorry if I'm breaking your throat. That, that you are that rare breed, an egot. Yes, I, I don't know who invented egots. I mean, well, can I just say I think it would be much more distinguished sounding to be a toge. <laughs> <laughs> I know an egot yeah. sounds like a very angry seagull. Yeah, toge, surely Tony Oscar Grammy Emmy. <laughs> these, these are the four awards that count. I mean, you, you know, you, you could have said, you know, life saving medal. I don't know. I mean, it's um. I'd never really heard of EGOTs until quite recently. And um, now you seem to be hearing them all the time. You know, he's got an EGOT or he, I don't know. That sounds like a Lionel Bart song. Yes, he's, he's got, got an EGOT. EGOT. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly rhymes no. with a lot of things. <laughs> no, it was, it was um, I mean, I appreciated that enormously. It was nice to get one. The Emmy was for being producers of the fairly recent television version of Superstar, which was done live in New York and filmed for television. It was a television special and... And my amazing, main, sorry, John yeah. Legend and Sarah Bareilles and Brandon Vixen-Dixon. And it was, my main contribution was suggesting the wonderful Alice Cooper as Herod, which he did brilliantly. Yeah, yeah. brilliant, inspired. And, uh, that suggestion got me an Emmy, as far as I can see. <laughs> <laughs> and Grammys, obviously, they go without saying. I find Grammys an interesting science to study because I know that the Madonna song, You Must Love Me, wasn't even nominated. And I was a bit surprised as it, as it won the Oscar as best song from and apparently Warner Brothers or somebody who was meant to fill in the form didn't and um yeah it's, it's a form which is thing. silly because 
I would imagine that the panel of experts who are choosing the Grammys, the nominations, should know enough about each category to make their choices themselves without relying on the record companies to send stuff in. Tim, I don't know how long we have, we've really taken up a lot of your time and we haven't mentioned, I mean, we are, you know, as we we said earlier, being a rock programme, as it were, we still haven't mentioned Elton John and we haven't mentioned Bjorn and Benny of our Yeah, chess, exactly. There's so much that we need to talk to you about. We always do a part two, you know. um, Yeah. A question I would like to ask you is, what do you feel you're most proud of? Well, it's difficult. I mean, um, I tend to, I think I'm quite realistic about some of my stuff. I mean, I, I think in a way the best idea I had was Ava Perron in a sense because following Superstar was almost harder than doing it in the first place. Whatever we chose to follow Superstar with, most people, including me, thought we'd never be able to follow it. And um, I think that was a brilliant idea. And um, I didn't really know it was a brilliant idea, but it just it grabbed me so quickly. I thought this could work. And, you know, I mean, Andrew would admit this happened. It took him a while to think it was a good idea. But once he did get it, he wrote the most wonderful score. And I think in terms of both our careers, I think that was the one that really ensured we were going to be around for a while. You made your difficult second album into yeah, a massive hit. exactly. That, that was exactly <laughs> it. And, um, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it's very difficult to say. I mean, I never thought Akuna Matata would become so popular as a sort of children's or song for children of all ages and but i that one i hear on the radio almost more than anything else yeah, <laughs> yeah. and as elton yeah. said he said i've been in this business for however many years it is 30 40 years and i end up writing a song about a farting warthog and um, <laughs> <laughs> is this progress and i said well i think it is probably you what you're going to win the lot <laughs> <laughs> We haven't really got... Because I, I, I really wanted to hit on chess. Well, I mean, but... I, listen, the last thing I want to do is to tell you what to do, but if you want to, in you know, a few months' time, do one on chess, so I can probably do a whole show on that. I think we should get what you back. Wrong I think this is... I, th- I, th- I think we should get you back, because is... it w- wouldn't do it justice, because I'm so No, and this and is the time in the, time in the show, show where it says, next on Rock on Tours, although in a few months, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and we'll go, you know, Andrew and Tim break up, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> ABBA get involved. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, the thing I love is that, because your story of you and... Andrew getting together it's at the same time and it's the same story as Elton and Bernie and there's this really funny parallel universe where you've just spent your life writing for Elton and Bernie's been writing for Andrew (laughs) well what is even more extraordinary about the Elton thing was that Elton and Bernie were on MCA which is our label in America and in here I shouldn't know they were on DJM over here but in America they hit hugely Elton became a big star almost overnight with his first major album. And um, he became a major star just at the same time that we did, although he was a performer, we were writers. And MCA had both of them. And furthermore, we both had huge albums in America. And both those albums flopped initially in Great Britain. It was extraordinary. There was an incredible parallel with our careers. And, Mm. you know, I was saying to Andrew, I'm a bit worried about this new Elton John chap, MCA, putting a rather lot of effort behind him. You know, had they forgotten about Superstar? And I'm sure Elton was saying, what the hell's going on with this Superstar thing? We know. Yeah. And, it was a sort of blur oasis thing yeah. going on between the two. <laughs> <But> I, <laughs> we, we were in different, you know, areas of the of yeah. the music world, but we were on the same label at the same time and hitting it big in the same country. It was strange. And, um, I mean, I've obviously 
got to know Elton very well and had the great privilege of working with him on several projects. But at the time, I would never have, you know, it was extraordinary. I would never have dreamt that, you know, 30 years on, seeing him at the Fillmore West on his first album, I would have thought, I don't think I'll be writing with Elton. Because... Wow, you were there. Fantastic. Well, actually, uh, you know, we saw him in the Fillmore East in New York. I was right. not at the Troubadour when he broke big, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately. Should have been. MCA should have invited us. But um, well, they I think we were probably in England at the time. <laughs> Tim, it's been great having you on. We must have you back. I mean, I think, we, yeah. you know, it's fascinating talking to you. You've got so many great stories and, and what a career. And, uh, and, and thank you for well, coming on you. the Contours. It's, it's, it's so nice to, you know, chat to blokes who know what they're talking about. <laughs> Very kind. You've just worked your way into the title you just, sequence. You just got yourself into the intro. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, it's lovely to see you. And Gary, I'm sure I'll see you very soon. The last few weeks, we've been running into each other every every six hours, which is... <laughs> and it's always, always a pleasure to see you, Tim. <laughs> uh, we'll have you on for part two sometime okay. in the future. Well, thank thanks, you so guy. much. Thanks, Gary. It's been great. Thank you, Tim. Really, it was a delight. A delight. And an honour. All honor. the very thank best. You. See you soon. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Oh, that was great. That was brilliant. That was fantastic. I'm kind of getting bored of saying this, that we only scratch the surface. I know. I, well, I don't want that to be our catchphrase. I don't want that to be the sort of under the title yeah, thing. Yeah, rock on turns. They barely scratch the surface. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the oversell. <laughs> but, you know, we could have gone on and on. I th- I th- yeah, I think there's a part two. You know what? I think there's quite a few people we might be looking at a part two. Yeah, yeah, frankly. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the guy wrote with Benny and Beyond, and Rick Wayne, and of course, Freddie Mercury as well. Yeah. He wrote some songs for Freddie Mercury's, and he, he wrote the last song that Elvis ever recorded. Doesn't sound very good, does it? That was the song that killed him, but uh, no, the last <laughs> song he ever recorded. I love the guy, such a nice yeah, man. Yeah, no, I love him, yeah. Someone said they were at a musical masterclass at something that he did, and he was using Handful of Songs as an example of a perfect bit of songwriting, which is why I brought it up. And it's so touching that your dad gets to have that connection as well. Yeah, and I always have a bit of family in somewhere, and that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) You are Mr. Showbiz. I am Mr. Showbiz. Cut me, I bleed showbiz. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for listening. We will be back next week with another great guest. I'm not quite sure who it is yet, but uh, we'll find out. We never are. We never are. It's seat of the pants. Can stuff, I just say, thank you can so I just, just add one last thing? We didn't talk about your friend, a father who passed away this week. Leslie Brickers. Leslie Brickers, the great songwriter. Yeah, we know. I know. It was absolutely of that stable. Yeah. We should just mention him before we go. We should mention that one of the absolute all-time greats had that amazing partnership with Anthony Newley. Amongst other things. Yeah, I had the honour of meeting him a few times. Um, And yeah, what a talent. And the world has lost one of the, you know, brightest lights. The great songwriters. Yeah. We'll see you next week. It's good night from me. And it's good night from me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 